following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning and a happy Labor Day weekend. Seems like there are <clears throat> some people probably traveling and out of town <clears throat> for the holiday. Uh, we're continuing on in the series on the <clears throat> Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and so um, before I do, they have a quick announcement. Um, the pastors at ICC have sort of gathered a lot of the books that they want to um, donate and give away. And so there will be a, book, a table at the back in the narthex there after service. You're welcome to peruse through those books and actually take as many of them as you like. Um, and we'll do that for about three weeks. After that three weeks, we'll go ahead and just uh, donate any unclaimed books to charity. Um, I know some of the books I've contributed to that collection that's going to be made available. They're, they're actually really good books. And you may be wondering, like, are these just kind of the throwaways that the pastors don't think are worth keeping or something like that? But the truth is, I think I speak for all the pastors. Um, a lot of us are kind of shifting toward an electronic library with Kindle and other platforms. And so as a result of that, we're trying to shed more and more of our physical books. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you'll see a lot of these books available. But to know um, some of the titles are actually definitely worth reading and checking out. And so would encourage you to do that. Okay. Let's go ahead and uh, bow in a word of prayer and then we will get into uh, the text for this morning. <clears throat> Father, as we continue to sit under the teaching of your son's word, uh, we pray that those words would penetrate underneath the armor of our self-protection, of all the ways that we um, deflect and um, push away at times the light of your truth. Uh, we pray that through the working of the Holy Spirit in us that we would really open ourselves up to uh, what you desire of us as your disciples, what you want from us. And even as you desire those things, we believe by faith that you will empower us by that same working of the Spirit, to live in the faithfulness to which we're called. And so we come before you with hungry and teachable hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so uh, <clears throat> I've been saying it pretty regularly in the last um, messages I've been preaching, but we're in this sort of special part of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Six Antitheses. And each of these antitheses, as I've been saying, follows this pattern of... Uh, Jesus starting off with each one saying, you have heard that it was said, and then uh, followed by um, what he says is, but I tell you, and then he goes on. And he begins each section by quoting an Old Testament law, and then rather than reacting against the law itself, what he's really doing is saying how you and your religious traditions have misconstrued that law. Mis misrepresented or misinterpreted it. And then he closes each section by sharing what God's actual intention was by giving us that law. And then even going beyond what Moses said to saying how his disciples need to even exceed what Moses taught the Israelites in the Old Testament. Okay, so that's the basic framework for each one of these antitheses. And as I've also alluded to, when we think of the curriculum of discipleship, uh, our, our brains naturally sort of gravitate toward these practices like Bible reading and prayer and 
um, church attendance and financial giving and evangelism. When we think about what does it mean to disciple someone, those are the things that we naturally think about. But based on what is revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when it comes to discipleship from Jesus' perspective, it's actually really different. It's not that Bible reading and those things aren't important, but look, what Jesus is concerned about when he thinks about discipleship is, what do you do with your anger? How does your faith show up in your marriage? How committed are you to truth-telling, even at great cost? How do you treat those who mistreat you and become your enemies? What are the worries that consume you and keep you from falling asleep at night? You see, it's not that Bible reading and prayer and church attendance aren't important. They are. But the problem is you can do all of those things and yet still not confront these deeper issues in your life that Jesus really cares about, matters of the heart. The topics that are raised in the Sermon on the Mount are some of the most difficult ones for us to face. Let's be honest about that. But through them, God is inviting us to take the first steps of experiencing the kind of whole life transformation that God wants every one of his disciples to experience under his leadership. In my last message, I unpacked Jesus' radical stance on divorce and remarriage, allowing for it only in the most unsalvageable marriages. And as I mentioned at the end of that message a couple weeks ago, that teaching seems to confirm for many of us some of our worst fears about God, that he actually doesn't really care about our happiness. And that's why he forces us to be trapped for some of us in really difficult marriages because he wants us to be unhappy for the rest of our lives. And that couldn't be further from the truth because the real reason why Jesus is so hard on divorce is because the whole purpose of marriage is to teach us something profound about God's love for us through the love that we experience in marriage. And um, in last week's, uh, two weeks ago in that message, I, I said that I felt like there was, to just talk about divorce was doing an injustice to the full teaching of Scripture on this message. And so I was going to do a part two where I try to give that rationale for what marriage is supposed to be. I spoke too soon because when I looked at the whole calendar, I realized coming really quickly in October, we're coming on this mini-series that the whole team of pastors is doing within the Sermon on the Mount on the Lord's Prayer. We're going to break that down. And so in order to be able to stay on schedule with that, um, uh, I can't insert another message in here. So I I have to stick to the preaching schedule. And so um, before I get to the actual text for today, which is an oath swearing, I just want to say, though, a few words on the issue of marriage Uh, to follow up on that message on divorce two weeks ago. And I just want to begin by saying, why do we marry? Why do we marry? This seems like a silly question, but it's actually a very important one that we all have to wrestle with. Because the truth is, I think for many of us, we don't actually really know why we marry. I think 
for many, the truth is, if we're really honest, we're motivated by an intense desire for companionship. That we want someone to go through life's journey with together. And so we look for a spouse. In many cultures, frankly, if we're honest too, it's just a rite of passage that to become an adult, you need to get married. You know, it's a very, it's a very unbiblical way of thinking about adulthood. Um, but nevertheless, it's out there. It's what you're supposed to do. You get married. Uh, but from God's perspective, the main purpose of marriage is to teach us about his love for us. W.H. Auden in a, a Certain World writes, Any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. See, Hollywood tries to convince us that the real excitement is in the dating scene, is in romance. It's in two people following their passions without any rules. But Auden understood that there is something far more profound and beautiful and interesting that takes place when these two people make a commitment for the rest of their lives till death do us part. It's actually in that moment that the real drama and excitement of a relationship unfolds. At the end of the creation account, we're told in Genesis 2, 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And every marriage after Adam and Eve has experienced this nakedness. Not only through the marriage bed, physically, but also spiritually. What I mean is that we see each other at our worst, when we've had a bad day, when our guard is down, when frankly you don't tired of managing your image like you have to do at work, and you just want to be yourself. And the truth is, that's why arguments cut so deeply in marriage. Because your spouse knows all the dirt on you, right? They are locked and loaded with ammunition to use against you because they've seen it all. They've experienced it all when you're at your worst. But in marriage, a husband and wife learn the meaning of the gospel by learning to forgive and reconcile with each other just as God has forgiven us. That is the meaning of marriage. Is through the difficulties and the friction and the fighting and all of the pressures that just are driving you to a part. It is the discovery of this gospel love that we begin to learn what it really means that Christ loved the church by the love that we learn to have with, for one another. In other words, through these repeated cycles of hurting each other and then forgiving each other, we are in essence declaring to one another, I, see, I have seen you at your worst. I know what brings you shame and embarrasses you, what you try to hide from others. And yet I love you and accept you just as God has loved and accepted me. John Piper in his book, This Momentary Marriage, writes, The highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. Marriage is not mainly about being or staying in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. It's about portraying something true about Jesus Christ and the way he relates to his people. It's about showing in real life the glory of the gospel. 
That's the beauty of marriage. A lot of times when a couple is struggling and I'm involved in this kind of marriage counseling, and what you realize is the golden ideal that they're trying to get back to is that dating life. Because they think that that was the pinnacle of their relationship, which is an absolute illusion. It's actually when you're fighting and you're struggling and you're at each other's throats and you want to kill each other that actually you begin to truly reenact the gospel. When you realize what it means that Christ died because of his love for the church. And so in that process of forgiving and seeking forgiveness and reconciling and loving and experiencing healing in the midst of the pain that you inflict on one another, you discover something profound about God's own love for us. And so the point isn't to just grit our teeth and miserably bear through a difficult marriage, but through God's help to discover what it means to love one another despite all of the hurt that we do to each other. And that is why God has, has given us this command on divorce. Fight for that marriage. I know it's hard. It's going to be the hardest thing that you do. But fight for that marriage. Because in that process of understanding what real love is, you begin to discover something very profound about God's love for you. Well, now I want to turn your attention to the fourth antithesis found in verses 33 to 37 of Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you're, you're, uh, you, made, you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, taken at face value, the teaching actually seems really straightforward, doesn't it? Don't make vows and don't swear oaths. And there are some Christians and Christian groups out there that really take it quite as literally as this and just period, full stop. And so... If they are ever called to testify in a legal proceeding, they will actually refuse to take an oath in that courtroom, citing Matthew 5, 33 to 37, and saying, based on my religious convictions, I cannot swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because God forbids me to do that. Now, as I mentioned in my last message, uh, if we look only at this ethical teaching of Jesus at the level of rules, then we're not going deep enough. Because underneath these rules are these principles and these basic convictions that inform these rules that we have to understand. And if we look at the issue of swearing oaths only in terms of rules, the problem is this. It seems like Jesus is actually contradicting the Old Testament. The commands that Jesus is actually referring to are found throughout the Old Testament on oaths and vows. Let me give you just a, a sampling of them. Leviticus 19, verse 12. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 22. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you may be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And then here's one that I think really clinches this issue of whether Jesus contradicts the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 says this, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. So it's clear that the Old Testament doesn't forbid people from making oaths and swearing vows. What it does do though is it warns the Israelites, if you do make a vow or swear an oath, you better be sure to keep it because God is going to hold you to that word. And so we find oaths and vows throughout the Old Testament. They're everywhere. You, you realize how important oaths and vows were to the Israelites. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, Saul, David, even some of the prophets, they're all making vows, swearing oaths. Before we go any further, let me define my terms a little bit here. What is a vow? A vow is a pledge before God of either committing yourself or forbidding yourself from a particular course of action. Let me give you one example. Found in Genesis chapter 28, verse 20 to 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. So it's a commitment being made to God and saying, well, if you do this for me, then I swear that I will do this for you. So usually it's in the form of something I commit myself to do or I commit myself not to do. Okay. What's interesting about vows is that they were often made in really extreme situations, moments of distress or desperation. And so it's not surprising that a lot of these vows were broken in the Bible because, let's be honest here, when things get better and circumstances improve, that vow just doesn't seem as important as when you are desperate and in need of help. A lot of it, these vows seem to be centering around bargaining with God when you really need his help. There's actually two types of oaths. There's what can be called an assertive oath, which is where the person swears that he did or do not do something. And the best way to understand an assertive oath is to just think about giving testimony in court. You're basically saying, yeah, this is what happened. I'm testifying. I swear by God that this is the truth. But there's another uh, oath called a voluntary oath, which is where the person swears to do something, which is, in essence, a vow. So in that way, um, a voluntary oath and a vow functionally are pretty much the same thing. In the Old Testament, oaths are often sworn in situations where there's a lot of distrust. And so the oath is given as an attempt to strengthen the trust between these two distrusting parties. And what's interesting is this, that the Bible is actually filled with God himself making oaths to us. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and 73 says this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. And then in verse 73 it says, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. What Luke is saying is that the promise that God made to Abraham to make him a great nation is nothing less than an oath sworn to Abraham. And if you look at the sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, he makes reference to Psalm 16 verse 10 where David talks about how God would not abandon him and allow his body to see decay when he died. And referencing Psalm 16, this is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 to 30. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, speaking about the risen Jesus. Again, saying that this was an oath of God himself to his people. And the reason why God swears these oaths is to let the people know that he is trustworthy. That his word can be counted on. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. In other words, an oath strengthens the trust in a statement. I swear to you that this is true, that this will come to pass. And so the whole point of oaths and vows was to give greater weight or credibility to your words. But now here is where the problem comes in. And it's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 5. Because by Jesus' time, Oaths and vows had the opposite effect of creating greater mistrust and cheapening a person's words. How did that happen? Well, let me explain it like this. The rabbis around the time of Jesus, if you read their writings in what is known as the Mishnah, if you read the Mishnah, what you discover is that they show this entire ranking system for giving oaths. And at the highest level was making an oath or swearing a vow uh, by the name of God himself. But that was considered so high stakes because if you break that vow or oath, you're in real trouble. So they created all of these lesser oaths that you could make that would not be as serious if you broke it. So they said instead of swearing by God's name, just swear to heaven because that's where he lives. Or swear to Jerusalem, because that's his holy city. Or swear by your own head, because you're made in the image of God. And they they had all of these things. And in fact, if you actually look at the Mishnah, you realize that it gets even more detailed than that. Because they say that if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by that vow. But if you swear by Jerusalem, you don't have to keep that vow as much. Okay? Um... In other words, when you make a vow or swear an oath with these substitute, substitutes, then it's okay. It actually creates a loophole. And you can break these vows or these oaths. And God's not going to get that mad because you didn't drag his name in the mud 
with your dishonesty. And this is precisely this whole system of loopholes that Jesus addresses in Matthew 23, verse 16 to 22, when he brings up the issue of oaths again. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You see this, this kind of wordplay they're doing? You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. You see, the end result of this entire ranking system for oaths was that, sadly and paradoxically, no one's word could be trusted anymore. That's what these oaths ended up doing. The purpose of oaths and vows was to guarantee trust and assure truthfulness of your words, but all these loopholes and different levels of oath-taking ended up creating doubt and distrust among people. I know, I'm a pretty big stand-up comedy fan. But one of the things I hate is when a comedian I really like says something like, now this next story is true, I swear. Why I hate when they say that is because all the other stories that they just told sounded so realistic. And you kind of wish they were true because they're so fun. And they sound like they actually happened to this guy. But the second he says, I swear this next story is true, you start realizing, I think he just made up everything that he just said in order to get a laugh. And it starts to undermine, it's just this creepy feeling like, I don't know if anything this guy is saying tonight is true at all. I just, he could be making up everything. And let's be fair, it's okay for a comedian to do that, right? Because he's just trying to get a laugh. But their stories sound so realistic. Or if you've ever had a friend that always says, I swear I'm telling the truth. Or I swear I'm not lying. It makes you question everything they say when they don't introduce you with that, right? When someone always feels the need to preface their comments with, I swear I'm telling the truth. This is one of the problems with oath-taking is it starts undermining your ability to trust what someone is saying. Dallas Willard reveals another layer to this problem of abusing oaths that goes beyond just simply a breakdown of trust. In Divine Conspiracy, he writes, Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that they do it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. It is a method for getting their way. They want their hearers to accept what they say and do what they want. So they say, by God, or God knows, to lend weight to their words and presence. It is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focusing upon, to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and, strict, and action strictly up to them. What Willard is saying is this. When we wrongfully use oaths and vows, in essence, what it is, is an effort to manipulate someone using deception to try to get them to do 
what we want them to do. Because we realize, by the strength of my own word, I can't convince them to do this. But if I use a vow, if I swear an oath, I can sort of tip the edge in my argument and get them to do what I want them to do. Because think about the situations when you are likely to use an oath or a vow. We swear to them when we feel we need more leverage, don't we? Because the other person isn't convinced by our argument up to that point. And so we use an oath or a vow to try to push them over that edge. And what Jesus is saying is by using these lesser oaths to heaven, to Jerusalem, to your own head, oaths that you know you are using because you can get out of those. He's saying you are manipulating people with deception, knowing full well that you have no intention of keeping that promise. Once you get what you want from them, you're going to back out on your word. And you hide behind all of this by saying, well, I'm not swearing on God's name like the law warns us. <laughs> and in both the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 23, Jesus says, these loopholes are not valid. Because what Jesus says is, when you swear an oath or make a vow, I will hold you to that word. Whether it's to heaven or to Jerusalem, the gold in the temple, the temple itself, the altar, the sacrifice on the altar, it doesn't matter. When you make that vow, I will hold you to your word. And so here becomes the big question then, the million-dollar question. Is it wrong, therefore, to swear an oath? If you read Jesus' younger brother James in his letter, it kind of sounds like he's saying, yeah, it is wrong. James chapter 5, verse 12 says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is simply yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned almost parroting his older brother's words, right? Here's the problem, though. Paul makes all kinds of oaths <laughs> in his letters. There's like over a dozen of them, but let me just give you three of them. 2 Corinthians 1.23, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, you know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Philippians 1.8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. They sure sound like oaths. <laughs> and even oaths in God's name, don't they? Here's the point I'm trying to make. If we look at this teaching on oaths and vows only at the level of rules, then it seems like James and Paul are contradicting one another. And it also seems like Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament. That's why we have to look at the principle and the basic convictions underneath these rules on oaths and vows. And I've already stated it in so many words, but the problem wasn't so much that people were swearing oaths and vows but that they were misusing them to manipulate with the deception of a false testimony, which is an oath, or a false promise, which is a vow, 
And that is the sin that Jesus is addressing. And so Jesus' solution to this problem is pretty straightforward. At the very end of this passage in verse 37, he says, All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, what Jesus is saying is just be a person of your word who is always truthful so that you don't need to swear oaths or vows. In other words, if you're always truthful, then your yes will be a sincere yes to anyone who hears it. And your no, they will know you mean no. The basic conviction that drives this principle is the fact that God himself is a God of truth. He is always truthful to his people. And so his people ought to be truthful as well. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak, then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That second part, is, the first part is like oaths, and the second part is like vows, isn't it? And saying, God is not like you. He is perfect in his promises. Perfect in his truth. Jesus himself in John 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are these certain characteristics of God that he doesn't, that, that Jesus doesn't even just say, I am like this, but he says, I am this. He applies this to love, he applies this to the holiness, and he applies this to truth. Saying, I am truth. I am the very essence of who I am is truthfulness. And that's why you must be truthful as my people. David Gushy and Glenn Stassen write, when I speak under oath or swear that my words are true, then you, are as, a you, are, you as my listener are supposed to be able to have confidence in my words. But what then is the status of what I say when I am not swearing or not under oath? Implicitly, at least, such words carry less weight. They may or may not be true. The very existence of an oath level of speech threatens to render or unveil everyday speech as less trustworthy. The oath level really only exists because people cannot be counted on to speak truthfully under normal circumstances. Otherwise, there would be no need for it. But if people cannot be counted on to tell the truth when not under oath, then why should they be trusted to do so when they are under oath? If truthfulness in and of itself is not valued at all times, then no one's speech can be fully trusted, no matter how many Bibles the person swears on. That's what Jesus is getting at. These oaths, these vows have no power in themselves. What you need is to embrace truth at the deepest levels of who you are and become that person of truth that can embody what it means to worship a God of truth. This is what Jesus means when he says, all you simply need is a yes or no if you are a disciple of mine. Because that is all that is needed to support the truth of your claim. Let your words always be truthful. So that vows and oaths aren't even necessary. Now this raises a difficult question. Are there legitimate exceptions to the rule of honesty? Or does God expect us to be honest in every situation? In the last message, I presented the scenario of a person being confronted by Nazis 
in World War II Germany asking if you're hiding Jews. And the truth is, this issue divides the church. There are definitely some Christian groups who would take an absolutist position to say, you should be truthful 100% of the time. Every single situation, even if Nazis are asking if you're hiding Jews. In the 19, 2019 film, The Farewell, I don't know if any of you, have any of you seen this, this film, some of you? It's actually based on a true story. It's discovered that a grandmother in a family has terminal cancer. And the family makes this interesting decision not to tell her the diagnosis so that she could live a carefree life for her remaining days. And so what the family does is they end up gathering from all over the corners of the world to China to see her. And they conjure up this fake excuse. They make up a fake wedding with one of the grandsons to give them a reason to go to China in order to make an excuse to see her before she dies. But one member in the family, this, the, the, the sole granddaughter named Billy, played by uh, Aquafina, um, doesn't like this decision and thinks it's all messed up and wrong. It's probably because she grew up in America with Western values. And she kind of looks at it and says, this is messed up. We got to tell grandma that she's dying because, man, like what if she has business she wants to take care of before she passes? And we don't even give her the opportunity to do that because we don't tell her she's dying of cancer. And one of the relatives tells Billy, Chinese people here have a saying. When people get cancer, they die. It's not the cancer that kills them. It's the fear. In other words, not telling the grandmother about her cancer was seen as an act of love, shielding her from the stress of knowing that she's dying. Hoping to find an ally in the doctor that's caring for her grandmother in the hospital Billy asks him at the bedside, speaking in English so that the grandmother can't understand what they're saying to each other, shouldn't we tell her? Isn't it wrong to lie? And the doctor replies, if it's for good, it's not really a lie. Billy replies, I mean, it's still a lie. To which the doctor responds, it's a good lie. And that becomes the big question, isn't it? Are there good lies? Now, we can argue <laughs> and have a debate about the rightness or the wrongness in this particular case of a family withholding a cancer diagnosis to a dying grandmother. Uh, that's up for debate, okay? I think a lot of that is cultural. But I do believe the Bible does teach that there are times when lying may be justified in a broken world. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Ethics, argued this. We have to understand our obligation to the truth in the context of the covenant that exists between two parties. So let me give you some examples that he actually gives. In a covenant of friendship, we do actually have an obligation 
to speak honestly with one another. In other words, our friends have the legitimate right to expect that whenever they talk with us, they're going to hear truthful words from us and not lies. Think about a relationship between a store owner and a shopper. There's also a covenant there, right? And in that covenant between store owner and shopper, the store owner should be truthful in selling products that are truthful. And the shopper should be truthful in that he will not steal anything from the shop owner. But now, think about the example of a parent-child relationship. Truth in this relationship is complicated, isn't it? For a child to be truthful to his or her parents, they shouldn't really keep any secrets, should they, from them. But the same isn't true the other way around. In wanting to be truthful as parents to the children, a parent still doesn't tell children everything because some things would be too much for that child to handle. They wouldn't, in other words, be able to understand some truths or would be totally overcome by them if you told it to them. And so as parents, what do we do? We keep some truths from them until they are ready, old enough to deal with them. Now, <laughs> here's the problem. Parents need to be really careful not to misuse this principle. Because even with children, I think there ought to be generally a stance of truthfulness as parents to children, as much as is possible. But now, Bonhoeffer says this, we can take it a step further to relationships where any sense of goodwill has been lost. In other words, the covenant between these two parties is completely torn apart. And that creates a moral crisis where other principles may be more important than truth-telling in this broken relationship. So, for example, in that situation where someone will use my truthful speech as the means to kill innocent life, like in the example of Nazis being told where Jews are hiding, Bonhoeffer argues, there is no covenant with that evil party. And therefore, you are not obligated to help them accomplish their evil means by your truth-telling. And Bonhoeffer argues, you actually see this principle in Scripture itself. Um, Pharaoh, in the days when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, ordered all of the Hebrew midwives to kill every Hebrew boy born to a Hebrew woman. And if you look at Exodus 1, verse 15 to 19, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names are Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And here's where the lie comes in. 
The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Bold-faced lie. But it seems to have been a justified lie in the face of that kind of order to kill these infants. Rahab also lied to save the lives of the Hebrew spies in Jericho. The prophet Elisha lies to the enemy armies in order to entrap them. And there are numerous examples of this in Scripture. And so, again, if we could get beyond the rule and see what the underlying principle and the basic convictions are, then I think there are just living in a broken world moments when we may be pressed into some deception. But here's the problem. (laughs) In our sinful hearts, we love those exceptions, don't we? And the argument that I would make is we have to be very careful not to misuse those exceptions to justify any kind of self-serving way that we want to dodge truthfulness. Because just like we looked at with the issue of marriage and divorce, the main teaching is tell the truth. And tell the truth all the time, as much as possible, even when it hurts you. That is the primary teaching that must be lost. We do need, in other words, to be careful not to be legalistically enforcing rules. But we also have to be careful not abusing loopholes around those rules. And at the heart of the teaching of Jesus is a call for his disciples to live lives of truthfulness. And as I close this message, this is just simply what I want to challenge with you with as you leave here today. Is particularly in light of the specificity of the teaching here in this passage. Can I just invite you to think about the ways that you use your speech to manipulate people in your life. The ways that you exaggerate things. Or conveniently keep things silent and secret in order to get things that you want. And can I ask you to pay attention this week to the ways that you do bend the truth. To try to get people to do certain things that you want them to do. Because you may be surprised to realize how much you weaponize your words to get things from people. To make yourself look better in somebody's eyes. More than you deserve. To make others look bad in somebody else's eyes. Putting them down when they're not there to defend themselves. To justify something that you know you have done wrong. And you're just trying to cover yourself. And make yourself look less guilty. Pressuring someone to do something they don't want to do. And so you use your words as weapons. To try to get them to do that thing. If you're a parent in this room. (laughs) As parents we do that all the time. To our children. Don't we? We use our words as weapons. To get them to bend to our will. The truth is we're all trying to manage people in our lives. And the greatest weapon we have at our disposal to manage them is our words. And Jesus says there's something about that type of living that is incompatible with the kingdom of God. 
that when somebody is really swept up by the love of God, they don't treat other people that way. They don't use their words to try to manipulate them. Pressure them. Get them to do what you want them to do. I already shared this quote with you a few sermons ago, but Dallas Willard says, a little girl in Sunday school expressed the human ambiguity well. When asked what a lie is, she replied, a lie is an abomination to God and a very present help in times of trouble. That is so true, isn't it? That is so true. Lying is so common because lies are so powerful. Let's be honest here. So many problems in your life are solved by a little lie here or there, aren't they? They're just so, such convenient little helpers <laughs> that come to your assistance whenever you need to get out of a difficult situation. Just tell a little lie. Bend the truth a little and get yourself out of that situation. We're, and here's the thing. We may be able to get away with a lot of the lies that we tell. The truth is probably only God knows the fraction of the, uh, only all the lies. People only know a fraction of the lies that we, we tell. And there's this feeling like lies are so easy because I get away with it all the time. But the deeper teaching about truthfulness in the Bible is this. It's about the person that you are becoming. That's what really matters. It's not that you got away with it and it didn't hurt anyone and it was a cost-free lie. But it is the person you are becoming when you tell those lies. Psalm 51 verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You delight in truth in the inward being. Meaning you become a person of truth because your God is a person of truth. And I reflect as bear his image in me. So that when people get to know me, what they know is that my yes is yes and my no is no. There's no double talk out of my mouth. They don't have to worry, is he managing me right now? Is there something he's conveniently leaving out in this conversation in order to get what he wants from me? Is he making false promises that he has no intention of keeping on his end? This is one of the greatest expressions of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in our world is the people of God representing the truth of God in our world. In a world that is reeling because of lies. What is the big mantra this day in our generation? Fake news, fake news, right? So that we don't know what to believe anymore about anything anymore, about politics or COVID or anything. There is just such rampant confusion in our generation. And in this world filled with lies has to be the people of God that says, I stand for truth. And sometimes it's incredibly painful when I have to own that truth and acknowledge when I have failed you or done something wrong or made a mistake and blamed you wrongly when I realized I was the one that was in the wrong. But there's something so powerful about a gospel witness of the people of God that can embrace that truth in their lives. Let's pray. Can I just invite you to on, just, just an honest moment of reflection in, in response to this message? Because the truth is this. I don't think a lot of us think of ourselves as liars. 
It's not a sin that I think many of us get that convicted by and feel that guilty of. Someone were to look at you and say, you're a liar. I think most of us get very offended and say, whoa, whoa, hold on here. I'm very offended by that. I'm not a liar. Maybe the truth is there's a lot more of a deceptive heart within us than we want to acknowledge. A huge part of letting go of this need to lie is a matter of faith. Because what we have learned through life is that I can control the uncontrolled, what seems to be the uncontrollable chaos of my life through lies. By these little deceptions and these exaggerations and these conspiracies of silence, I can bend things my way. So to be a truth teller is ultimately a matter of faith in God. That as I tell the truth, God is in control. And I don't have to try to manipulate and manage the people that I care so much about in my life. But in telling that truth, I can surrender them to God and trust that He is at work as the ultimate truth teller in this situation. We need faith to live by truth. Maybe that's a simple prayer that you can pray right now to God. God, I realize that through my words, I do manipulate people and situations. I feel this need for control. But give to me your faith to let go of that need to control and to just, with a certain freedom and abandon, to embrace truth, even when it's costly. Maybe to truly pray that prayer is going to mean that you're going to have to confess some difficult things to some people, to own up to some things that you have kept secret for a really long time. I don't know. But I believe something about that truthfulness really honors God and gives Him space to work in your life.